Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Well, hello and good day, everyone, and welcome to Tuesday, February 27th, only one more day here left in this month, and then we're on to March, and hopefully the slow trek toward a lovely spring. And speaking of spring, if you have not yet been outside today, it is, as of now, a lovely spring-like day. Temperatures are going to be in the 50s, mid fifties, low to mid-50s today. Bright sunshine and just a beautiful day. But before we get into the weather for today and the week, I will let you know that this is your volunteer reader, Doug Fagan, coming to you today, as always, from the studios of the Audible Local Ledger here in sunny Mashpee, Massachusetts. What a pleasure it's been today to just throw on a shirt, a light vest, and come outside and enjoy the weather. Anyhow, speaking of the weather, let's take a look at what's going to be happening today and throughout the week through Saturday. Today we're going to have sun in the morning and some increasing clouds with a brief shower maybe in the afternoon. Today's high is going to be around 52 degrees as a general uh, statement. Tonight, we're going to have an overnight low of only 45 degrees and an evening shower. It's going to be a bit breezy with a late rain shower. Tomorrow, 53 degrees. Very warm again, but unfortunately cloudy and some showers will be around and will be coming even windier. Thursday and Friday, we're dropping down back into the 30s again, although it's going to be in the high 30s. It's going to be 39 on both Thursday and Friday, but abundant sunshine on both days. And then Saturday, we move back into a bit warmer temperatures with a high of 49. It's going to be cloudy with the possibility of an afternoon shower. Now, as we look around the Cape and on the west side, Temperatures consistent, 55 as a high today at Buzzards Bay and Wareham. Crossing the canal on the, on the bridge over into Sandwich, 56 degrees is going to be the high there. 55 in Falmouth, 53 in Mashpee, as well as Barnstable, 52 in Hyannis. These are highest, folks. 54 in Dennis, 52 Chatham, 56 Brewster. 55 East Ham, 52 Truro, and out at P-Town, 52 degrees. So very pleasant temperatures all around the Cape today, but unfortunately becoming increasingly cloudy with some late afternoon or mid-afternoon showers. Water temperature, nah, still too cold to swim. 39 degrees out in Cape Cod Bay. Minimal wave heights of 1 to 3 feet in wind direction south-southeast at 7 to 14 knots. Heading out to the islands, out on Oak Bluffs at Edgartown, we're seeing a high of 53 degrees. And um, moving on to Nantucket, or over to Nantucket, it's a constant 50, Nantucket Village 51. Water temperature in Nantucket Sound, surprisingly, a little cooler than the bay. At, it's at 37 degrees, so 2 degrees cooler. Minimal wave heights again, 1 to 3 feet in wind direction, modest 
at 8 to 16 knots. So there you have it. Not too bad of a weather forecast, although, as I say, it's going to become cloudy with some rain this afternoon and into Wednesday. But as we look at Thursday and Friday, sunshine returns to the South Shore and the Cape. So there you have it, friends, a look at the weather for today and throughout the week. All right, now let's go ahead and take a look at our page one of today's Cape Cod Times for Tuesday, February 27th. And here on page one, we have actually, kind of surprisingly, several articles about the Cape. And this first one says, WET, W-E-T, WET Fest, teaches students about Cape Cod water. It's by Marilee Cassidy of the Cape Cod Times Network with a dateline of... And here is the article. Back from February vacation, sixth graders at Barnstable Intermediate School filled the gym to do some hands-on activities to learn about the Cape's single-source aquifer. AmeriCorps Cape Cod members hosted WET, which stands for Water Education Today. They hosted the WET Fest at the Hyannis School Monday. This is the second wet fest held at the intermediate school since January for the sixth grade students. The event is an interactive program for teaching students about the fundamentals of water and the Cape's sole source aquifer done in partnership with Cape Cod Groundwater Guardians and Cape Cod Cooperative Extension. It's also AmeriCorps Cape Cod's biggest education initiative, said AmeriCorps Cape Cod member and WetFest coordinator Sarah Lawson. Monday's event was the group's seventh WetFest. The last one will be on Friday in Provincetown, where Wellfleet and Truro students will also attend. The local initiative, Lawson said, is based on the National Project WET program. Different stations were set up and students were able to participate in hands-on activities that included lessons on all things related to water from local aquaculture to septic systems to sea life. Project-based learning specialist Karen Newhouse said they were able to bring WetFest to the school through a BAR, that's B-A-R-R, grant, which provides funds for project-based learning. WetFest, she said, is a good fit, and it lines up with the sixth-grade science curriculum. And accompanying this article is a picture of AmeriCorps member Claire Williams, pulls a bubble over Tanera Palmer, 12, of Marston's Mills, on Monday at the West Fest Barnstable Intermediate School. And it's all about learning about water and the sole source aquifer on Cape Cod. So I'm sure there was more to that experience than what is written about here. But again, a very interesting uh, attempt to initiate and inform our young Cape Cod students about the Cape Cod water situation, and the sole source aquifer here on the Cape. Our next article on page one is entitled Cape Cod International Women's Day Event Set. It's by Zane Razak of the Network of Cape Cod Times, and here is the article. The League of Women Voters of the Cape Cod area will revive a long-standing International Women's Day event that was once organized by a now-defunct 
organization. The Cape Cod Women's Coalition held its annual International Women's Day breakfast for at least 10 years. The group's operations ceased indefinitely in 2022 as it struggled to recruit members and volunteers during the COVID-19 pandemic. This year, the event will be held from 7.30 to 9.30 a.m. on Friday, March 8th at the High Port Conference Center in Hyannis. It's an honor to be asked to resurrect the event and to plan it, said Jean Morrison, the co-president of the League of Women Voters of the Cape Cod area, with Mary Utt, that's U-T-T. Hopefully this is the first of a continuation of celebrating International Women's Day. The League of Women Voters of the Cape Cod area will host a breakfast in conjunction with the League of Women Voters of Falmouth, Amplify, POC, the Women and Girls Fund of the Cape Cod Foundation, the Herring Pond Wampanoag Tribe, and the Cape Cod Verdian Museum. Two panels will focus on the theme, quote, the power of women and girls creating changes, end quote. It's really about using your power from where you are in life to make positive change in our community, said Morrison. So who were the speakers at this event? Well, Mindy Todd of The Point on WCAI will moderate the first panel, which it will be called Celebrating Women Elected Leaders Making a Difference. The panelists include Barnstable County Sheriff Donna Buckley, Born Select Board Member Melissa Ferretti, and Falmouth Select Board Member Anjal Scott Price. Freddie, who is also the Herring Pond Wampanoag Tribe chairwoman, said she hopes her participation on the panel will empower other women like herself to consider getting involved in their respective communities. I consider myself an average person in some ways, and I didn't expect to be in this role. But there's reasons I did it, she said. I think women don't realize how powerful and effective they can be in these roles, said Freddie. The second panel, which will be called Celebrating Young Women and Girls Making a Difference at the Local Level, will be moderated by Erica Heides of Belonging Books. Panelists include Caribbean lounge owner Alana Boda, entrepreneur Helena, Helena Monti, business owner and translator interpreter Natalia Froes, that's F-R-O-S, and Cape Cod Community College student and activist member of the YMCA Achievers Program, Destiny Powell. Local organizations that serve women and girls will also be on hand to share information and services available within the Cape Cod area. It was most appropriate to be inclusive of all the diversity of Cape Cod and women from all over the world who lived there, said Morrison. We thought planning should include representation of diverse groups of women. Amplify POC, Chief Executive Officer and Founder Tara Vargas-Wallace, said she wants people to come away from the event being inspired. Because of my role with Amplify, my focus is on people of color, and women of color have been missing from a lot of these events. All women are powerful, and we're more powerful together and get more done when we are all included, said Vargas Wallace. Registration is required and can be completed on the League of Women Voters of the Cape Cod Area website. 
All right. There's an article about the Cape Cod Women's International Day event set to be reinstituted very soon. All right, let's move on to our next article, still staying here on page one of today's Tuesday Cape Cod Time. This article is entitled, Grant Will Train Cape Healthcare Workers. It's by Denise Coffey of the Cape Cod Times Network. It has a dateline of Chatham. And here is the article. Six certified nursing assistants were in the room Friday at Broadreach Healthcare when it was announced that the state approved a $1.9 million fund to train and place more healthcare workers in the industry. State and local officials were on hand, but it was the workers and the people they hope to welcome into their ranks that the money will mean the most for. We're constantly looking for new people, said Broadreach Administrator. Administrator Jason LaValle, calling the health, the Cape's healthcare industry an extremely challenging environment given the costs of training, transportation, and housing. Mass Hire Cape and Islands Workforce Board received the $1,921,783 grant and will partner with Broad Reach Healthcare. Duffy Health Center, Gosnold Incorporated, and Relief Home Health Services to train and place 106 participants in licensed practical nurse, CNA, and CNA preceptor, that's mentoring positions. Training partners include Cape Cod Community College in West Barnstable and the Upper Cape Cod Regional Technical High School in Bourne. State Labor and Workforce Development Secretary Lauren Jones, who made the announcement, called the Broad Reach Administrator Grant a tool to support the workplace needs of the entire state. The Cape was one of nine regions to receive such grants. Altogether, $16.3 million is going to fund nine initiatives focused on job training and placement in jobs that are in high demand in the healthcare and behavioral health industry, she said. The investment will lead to more than 1,800 jobs from the Cape to the Berkshires, Jones said. Mass hire workforce boards in Worcester, Salem, Lowell, New Bedford, Springfield, and Marlborough received grant funds, as did the Berkshire County Regional Employment Board and Boston Private Industry Council. The grant will open a pipeline for workers, some who may have no health care experience at all, to begin a path towards licensure and employment in health care services on the Cape. So priority occupations on Cape Cod are the key to participation. The companies chosen to participate, then the providers who will design and provide training, were identified after a process that considered in-demand priority occupations in each region, according to Commonwealth Corporation Senior Program Manager Thomas Hevron. Commonwealth Corporation is a quasi-public agency that distributes private and public funds for the initiative. The regional programs have been developed to meet the different needs of those each regions, whether they be phlebotomists, surgical assistants, radiologic and pharmacy technicians, or other health-related careers, Heverin said. So we have a broad reach in the program. The six CNAs at broad reach, when the news came in, 
know the need firsthand. Since the pandemic hit, they've been working hard to meet the demand on Cape Cod. A sign near the front door of the facility pays tribute to the workers who showed up daily during the difficult days when COVID-19 claimed the lives of many elderly patients. Now help is on the horizon. Since July 12 of last year, experienced CNAs have trained 10 new CNAs to work at the 132-bed facility. The new CNAs are working, adding about 400 hours of assistance per week. In state hospitals alone, around 19,000 acute care positions are unfilled, according to an October report from the Massachusetts Health and Hospital Association. With this grant, we were able to put together an individualized program that will help people getting their foot in the door in health care services and setting them up for success, LaValle said. The program will include 75 hours of state-mandated classroom instruction, which is where the Cape Cod Community College and the Upper Cape Cod Regional Tech High School come in. But what sets the program apart is the mentoring piece, LaValle said. Experienced CNAs will train the new hires, show them the ropes, and be mentors for the duration of the program leading up to their certification exams. And there will be stipends to help students with costs such as child care or transportation, according to Kara O'Donnell Galvin, Executive Director of the Mass Hire Cape and Islands Workforce Board. We know how expensive it is to live and work on the Cape, she said. Per the CNAs, or pay rather, for the CNAs, starts at $20 per hour, according to LaValle, who added even that amount isn't enough for the Cape. Kevin Coughlin, executive director of the Greater Lowell Workforce Board, said the grants are a boost to the state's health care industry. The pathway component of the program makes this very different from other programs, he added. Lowell will receive $2.51 million to train and place people as mental health peer support specialists, community health workers, and direct service associates. You enter as CNA, but know there is a pathway to become something like a phlebotomist or nursing assistant, he said. All right, so there you have it, a program that based on a grant that will train more workers to become health care workers throughout the state and on Cape Cod. All right, friends, at this point in today's broadcast, let's take a look at the various lotteries across the nation and here in Massachusetts. First, looking at the two really big ones, Mega Millions and Powerball. The Mega Millions jackpot is up to a whopping $563 million. That drawing will be held tonight at 11 o'clock. The Powerball drawing is at a jackpot of $412 million, and that will be held tomorrow, that drawing. So, in the most recent Mega Millions drawing, which was last Friday, February 23rd, we'll now take a look at those numbers that were drawn, and here they are. 4, 6, 40, 41, and 60, with a Mega Ball of 11. Again, last Friday, Mega Millions, 4, 6, 40, 41, 60, and 11 is the Mega Ball. Now turning to Power. The most recent Powerball drawing was held yesterday, 
and those numbers were these, 24, 29, 42, 51, 54, and a Powerball number of 16. Again, 24, 29, 42, 51, 54, Powerball 16. Okay, moving on to a few more lottery. The numbers games from yesterday. The midday numbers game drawing were these numbers. 6119. 6119 for the midday numbers game. The evening numbers game drawing numbers were these. 5450. 5450 for the evening numbers game. Mass cash, which was held again yesterday, February 26th. Here are those numbers. 13, 14, 19, 22, and 31. Mass cash, 13, 14, 19, 22, and 31. And the Mega Bucks, if you're playing that, those numbers were drawn also yesterday, and here they are. 3, 10, 12, 23, 25, 39, and again, mega bucks from yesterday, 3, 10, 12, 23, 25, 39. And finally, the lucky for life drawing. We've got plenty of games here to play, folks. Yesterday, February 26, lucky for life numbers were 1, 7, 17, 38, 46, and 12 as a lucky for life ball. Again, lucky for life, 1, 7, 17. 38, 46, and the Lucky for Life ball, 17. All right, there you have it. Nobody's won the big jackpots, but hopefully somebody will. Frankly, I'd love to win one myself, but I don't have anywhere near the luck to do that. But for all of you who do play out there, get those tickets, $2 apiece for the big lottery drawings. And as always, I say to you, good luck, player. Now turning to page 3, the Cayman Islands page, where typically we do, as we always do, find some local articles of interest, and today is no exception. This first article says, Sandwich starts upgrade on Route 130. It's written by Heather McCarran of the Cape Cod Times Network. And here's the article. Long-anticipated improvements to the busy Route 130 and Quaker Meeting House Road intersection in Sandwich are finally beginning. The Sandwich Department of Public Works Engineering Division on Friday issued an advisory about the start of the work, which will occur Monday through Friday, that's Monday through Friday of this week, 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. The project is planned to continue through the year, so it won't be just this week, but through the year, and again, that's 7 in the morning till 5 in the afternoon. We've been talking about this for quite a long time. It was just a matter of getting the funding allocated, said infrastructure manager Sean Harrington last Friday. We're certainly anxious to get started out there. The work getting done to start is going to be fairly minimal, he said, including surveying, utility markout, installation of erosion controls, and other similar pre-construction activities. Assistant Town Engineer Sam Jensen said the town recently awarded the contract to Lawrence Lynch Corporation of Falmouth, which he said is a very well-respected local company. So pedestrian safety, traffic flow, and drainage, what will that look like? Well, the project cost is $1.6 million, just below the original estimate of $1.8 million. A portion of that 
that being $400,000, is covered by a grant from the State Department of Transportation, Complete Streets Funding Program, with other funds coming from the State Chapter 90 Transportation Program and the town as well. The project for Route 130 and Quaker Meeting House Road is an intersection improvement project, said Jensen, noting the town identified the need some time ago. The focus, he said, is on improving pedestrian safety and traffic flow, which should also serve to ease traffic to and from the Forestdale School. Harrington said plans call for upgrades to the traffic signals, sidewalk improvements with access ramps, drainage work, and road resurfacing. There has been a persistent drainage issue there, a combination of the heavy storms we've gotten and structures getting clogged, he said. The project will also create additional right and left turning lanes on Route 130 and will improve bicycle accommodations to the intersection as well, according to Jensen. So the bicycle lane and wider sidewalks, what's that all about? Well, there will be a bicycle lane and there will be wider sidewalks, Jensen said. The project will connect with the Quaker Meeting House Road sidewalk, referring to the wide sidewalk that leads up to the Oak Crest Cove Skate Park and the Pop Warner Ball Fields. The Sandwich Bikeways and Pedestrian Committee has had this project in their sights for quite some time, he said. As for the existing traffic signals, there will be improvements that include left turn signals as well as pedestrian crossing signals. Jensen said there are no pedestrian walk and don't walk flasher signals at all now. It's been a need that's been identified by the town by, for a long time. Eventually, state transportation planners will assist the town with resurfacing one, Route 130 from the intersection south toward Mashpee. During the project, the town public's works department said access to area homes and business may be periodically delayed, but full access will be restored at the end of each workday. Motorists are asked to pay attention to signage and the guidance of safety officers and to use alternate routes if possible. Notices will be issued if work is scheduled outside these hours or changes to traffic patterns are anticipated. Okay, that's the end of that article about sandwich, starting upgrades on Route 130. Well, as all of you know, we're in the heart of political season and will be up through the national general election on November 5th. This next article is politically related, and it says the Barnstable District seat up for grabs. This article is by Denise Coffey. And here. The State House seat for the 5th Barnstable District is up for election this year. The primary election is September 3rd, and the general election is, of course, November 5th. The dateline to register to vote, update your voter registration, or to change your party is 10 days before any election or town meeting. As of February 25th, two people are running for the seat, those being Owen Fletcher, a Democrat from Barnstable, and Stephen Zeros, the Republican incumbent from Barnstable. So what were the issues in the last election for this seat? Well, the election was uncontested in 2022. Issues raised in the election included the influx of migrants, public safety, local aid to towns, support for public education, 
various infrastructure items and the environment. Those were for 2023. So what about the issues for 2024? Well, Sandwich Democrat Town Committee Secretary Catherine Osgood said the biggest issue in Sandwich was stopping the proposed machine gun range at Joint Base Cape Cod. Stopping a gun range at the base is a critical issue for us, she said in a phone call February 7. We've been petitioning and demanding EPA studies. It comes down to the impact on the aquifer. Osgood said the other important issues facing Sandwich included access to housing that was affordable, also helping women over 65 who were living in poverty and climate change especially the changing nature of Town Neck Beach. For Sandwich Republican Town Committee Chairman Gene Perini, the main challenge facing the district's representative was the influx of migrants into Cape communities and the financial support received from the government. He said the influx is contributing to a shortfall in the state budget, and he believes it will impact emergency care in the state's hospitals. For Barnstable Democratic Town Committee Chairman Carlos Barbosa, the big issues included housing, water quality, and food insecurity. The 5th Barnstable District has elderly people who have to choose between buying food or medication, he said in a telephone conversation on February 7th. How can that be, especially in the United States, he asked. Added, I'm not talking about affordable housing, but housing for the workforce. So what towns or areas does this vacancy cover? The 5th Barnstable District includes Sandwich, Precincts 10, 11, and 12 in Barnstable, and Precincts 1, 2, 3, 5A, and 7 in Borm. So what does this person to be elected actually do? Well, the Massachusetts House of Representatives is comprised of 160 members, each representing a district of approximately 40,000 people. As required by the Mass State Constitution, the House may not adjourn itself for more than two days, meeting year-round in either formal or informal session, to introduce, consider, and vote on legislation. So how much does a position pay? Well, Massachusetts legislative salaries in 2023 started at $73,655 per year, plus fifteen dollars to $20,000 for expenses, depending on how far they live from Boston, according to the National Conference of State Legislators. Legislators in leadership roles actually receive more pay. So how often are these elections held? Well, state legislators in both the House and Senate serve in their rules for two years. All seats are up for election in years that end with an even number. Well, and so, who is the current incumbent? Well, Stephen Zeros was first elected to the office in the year 2020 and took office then in January of 2021. He ran for and won re-election in 2022. He is a ranking minority member on the Joint Committee of Veterans and Federal Affairs, House Committee on Ways and Means, Joint Committee on Mental Health, Substance Use and Recovery, and Joint Committee on Public Safety and Homeland Security, as well as Joint Committee on Ways and Means. So, who has filed? 
And what about campaign funds? Well, as of January 31st of this year, Zeros had $51,700 plus in cash on hand, according to the Massachusetts Office of Campaign and Political Finance. Democrat Owen Fletcher is running for the first time. He is currently clerk of the Assembly of Delegates for Barnstable County, the county's legislature. He's responsible for drafting ordinances and resolutions on behalf of the Assembly, reviewing ordinances that have been submitted, and preparing reports for committee review. As of January 31st, Fletcher had raised just over $6,700, according to state records. All right, friends, there you have it with two people already filing to run for the Barnstable district seat, which is up for election this year. Those being Stephen Zeros and Owen Fletcher. Well, friends, we're a bit past the halfway point of today's broadcast, and it's typically here where we take a look at the obituaries. And today we'll do that as well. We have only one, and that is of Hunter Scott, S-C-O-T-T, of Pocasset. So here it is. Hunter Scott, age 73, of Pocasset, Mass., passed away at home peacefully on Thursday, February 22nd. Hunter was loved dearly by his wife, Lou, his three children, Catherine, Hunter, and Philip, and his two grandchildren, Maddie and Henry. He was born to the late Alma and Hunter Scott on February 1st of 1951 in Plymouth, Mass. As a child and in his, in his young adult life, Hunter loved to spend time with his father, learning the art of fine woodworking. Hunter graduated with a business degree from Roanoke College in 1972. And after college, he went on to pursue his dreams to become a craftsman of custom boats. He started his career at Cape Dory and later opened his own business, Hunter Scott Custom Boats, building beautiful Down East-style boats. In addition to his career of 38 years, he spent his pastime in building anything that would float from sailboats and canoes to whatever. Hunter also loved to design and build furniture, the true essences of a master craftsman. He furnished homes throughout the Cape and surrounding areas. Hunter was also an avid sailor and sportsman. He loved cruising Buzzards Bay and beyond on his custom Bristol 35, built by him at age 22, and later his own Hunter Scott Custom 36. He was a member of the Falmouth Ski Club, where he enjoyed shooting with friends and family. He also loved to fish by the Ayusable River in the Adirondacks. Hunter was an active member of the community, participating in the shore and harbor committees, making efforts to better the waterfront and his hometown. He always loved to laugh and tell jokes. Oh, the jokes. Hunter made long-lasting friendships everywhere he went. He took great pride in his work, family, and the life he had created. He will be missed and certainly remembered by many. Please take a moment to give him a toast and to cheer his great legacy. Imagine the amazing workshop that he has now stepped into with endless possibilities forever. All right, there you have it, friends. The obituary of Mr. Hunter Scott of Pocasset, who at age 73 passed away this past Thursday. And that concludes today's obituaries, that being the only one. 
All right, friends, at this point, we're going to move to a little bit lighter side of today's Tuesday, February 27th edition of the Cape Cod Times, and we'll take a look at the Ask Carolyn column, where, as you know, readers from out there write in to Carolyn and seek her advice with dilemmas or problems that they are experiencing, hoping that Carolyn can be the fixer for same. And this article, the lead-in, says, Mother feels like a failure as her teens struggle with mental issues. Here's the letter. Hello, Carolyn. Yesterday, my teenage son was diagnosed with anxiety disorder and was prescribed medication. Two months ago, my teen daughter was diagnosed with depression, and she too was put on meds. I've been a stay-at-home mom their whole lives, and along with my husband, their dad, have done my absolute best to raise them to be healthy and happy. We love them immeasurably and do our very best every day to support, listen to them, and to nurture them. I'm feeling like such a failure that both my kids are currently struggling. Can you help me frame this better? How did I screw up the one incredibly important thing I was supposed to be doing? And here's Carolyn's response. Dear Mom Failure, Mom Failure, stop. You did not screw up. Kids everywhere are having extraordinarily difficult times right now. Depression and anxiety are way up. Stress, too, is up. Mental health resources are strained and schools are overburdened, underfunded, and understaffed. You're doing your job. You're listening, supporting, and nurturing are what they need as they learn to manage these conditions, whether these are isolated episodes or the beginnings of chronic conditions. They're often genetic, meaning no amount of maternal magic would have preempted them. And no, your genes aren't your fault either. Reflect on your choices to learn, absolutely, but not to beat yourself up at no point. A cautionary reframe might help, too. To declare yourself a failure because your kids have mental health diagnoses is a form of shaming, as if such diagnoses are so awful that no good parent would ever let them happen and no child can succeed with them. Struggle is universal. How people deal with struggle is what determines health, happiness, success, including yours as a parent. You need to meet your kids' needs as they struggle, and you are certainly striving to do so. And here's a thought from a reader on this topic. In 2000, meaning pre-9-11 and all the ways it changed the world, ubiquitous cell phones, social media, pandemic, etc., the American Psychological Association found that kids in general were more anxious than kids in psychiatric treatment in the 1950s. Think about that. The level of stress that warranted childhood psychiatric treatment in 1950 was less than the stress that everyone considered a normal part of being a kid in the year 2000. And things have only gotten a lot more stressful for kids since then. Honestly, you should be so proud of yourself for getting your kids treatment. That's good parenting. So, I agree with Carolyn. You are not a mom failure, but a mom success. You got your kids the help they need. If you replaced anxiety and depression as the diagnoses with kidney disease and a heart murmur, would you consider yourself a failure? 
No, mental health is one category of health concerns. Seeing my kids struggle is the hardest thing I've ever gone through. And I question myself constantly, but I feel better having put together a team of professionals like our pediatrician, therapist, psychiatrist, and support from the school. You may want to reach out to friends because I bet more of them are in your same boat than you might know. We are living in very difficult and challenging times. Don't think it's your fault, at least until your kids start blaming you. That's a special hell of its own. No need to enter it voluntarily. All right, well, there's some actually pretty good advice, not only from Carolyn, but from an outside reader to the mother who feels as if she's a failure because her kids are struggling with mental health issues and have been put on medication. That was an interesting article. All right, let's move on. Here's an article from the health section of the paper. It's entitled, kind of going along with the Ask Carolyn column, Child Care. And it says, Child Care Debate Can Spur Real Life Involvement in the Community. And it's written by David Oliver of the USA Today Network. And here's the article. About a month ago, a dad came to Dave Ramsey for financial advice and mentioned the thousands upon thousands of dollars he was spending on child care. Well, the radio personality said, they're not even in school and you're paying $25,000 a head? Come on, dude, that's just dumber than crap. Parents quickly tore apart Ramsey's response, saying they've been screaming at the top of their lungs for years that child care is too expensive and we need a solution. People like Dave, pretending that this is not happening, is wild to me because it is documented that this is indeed the cost of daycare, a TikTok user wrote in the caption of her response to Ramsey. Then a 22-year-old named Emma on TikTok piped up with the fix. That being, stop prioritizing your career. Stay home. The reaction was swift. Swift and scathing. I'll just tell the mortgage company that we aren't prioritizing our careers anymore, used a clapped-back commentator. USA Today reached out to both Ramsey and Emma for comment. The latter was has since offered an apology video. The rapid, raging rebuttals to these videos illustrate just how frustrated parents are feeling. Experts say parents who are very bothered by this content may be better off challenging their energy into their in-person communities if they want to create tangible transformations and keep their mental health intact as well. The responses also serve as a reminder to content creators that if you don't share a community's lived experience, it may be best to mind your own business. There's not an easy fix. Here's the truth. Annual child care costs vary dramatically around the country. The average cost of school-age care in small communities runs about $5,000, where in very large counties, the average cost of infant-age care is more like $17,000, and that's according to the Department of Labor Statistics. Some states, however, are worse. In Massachusetts, for example, nearly $20,000 is the cost for child care, That's for a year as of 2021. 
Marla Brassard, Professor Emerita of Psychology and Education at the Teachers College of Columbia University in New York, said the TikTok users labeling Ramsey as, quote, out of touch are right on the money. People are trying to listen, but there's not an easy fix, said Robin Gerwich, professor in psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Duke University. And that leads to more frustration. And videos like this get very triggering for many parents, says Regini Galante, a clinical psychologist. They can especially sting when the comments come from those who are not in the trenches, as parents are day in and day out. As for Emma's suggestion to deprioritize your career, well, women have been dealing with this guilt for generations, says Anna Marcolin, a psychotherapist and personal development life coach. We feel guilty, many of us. Even if we want to work, we feel guilty at times leaving our kids home, whether with a nanny or having to put them in daycare. And it's okay to want to work. Money and social media vortex. Well, it's easy to spout whatever you want on social media with little concern for the consequences. We're happy to sound off on social media about our real feelings about each other with money, Mark Olin adds, and we don't even know who each other is. So who actually knows the financial difficulties various families face? If Ramsey's word in particular made your skin crawl, you were in good company. I'm watching something, and that's not my lived experience. Then it can become very frustrating, Gertwitch said. Those frustrations could in turn harm your mental health, so it behooves you to take some actions. So back off and reserve judgment. Brassard believes the TikTok user who rebutted Ramsey is an excellent model of how to educate without escalating a misunderstanding. If these TikToks are bothering you that much, of course, you can always stop watching them. Plus, solutions exist away from phone screens. Parents looking to take action beyond TikTok can take turns watching each other's kids attend community events and advocate for solutions to the child care crisis. Or maybe start a letter-writing campaign. It won't change overnight, Gertwood said, but at least I feel like I'm taking an action. Without action, you might feel increased hopelessness, which won't do you any good. That said, if you're not a parent but somehow feel the need to weigh in, do your research first. Unless you have or recently had a preschool-aged child, you are, un- you are most likely to be ignorant of the current child care situation. Things have changed so much in the past decade and even worse since the tam- pandemic, Brassard said. Also, don't shame parents for their child care choices. Back off and reserve judgment for why people are choosing to put their kids in daycare, Mark Colin says. So here's the bottom line. Don't post on TikTok or anywhere else without concrete knowledge. You'll save yourself and viewers many a headache. All right, there you have it. Pros and cons and people's opinions about the health care situation in the United States, good or bad to work versus staying at home, and the relatively high cost of health care. All right, let's move. In the Nation and World page, here's an article that says the U.S. eyes ceasefire and hostage deal soon. Well, let's hope so. It's by the Associated Press, this article is, and it has a dateline of New York City. President Joe Biden said Monday that he hopes a ceasefire 
between Israel and Hamas that would pause hostilities and allow for remaining hostages to be released can take effect by early next week. Asked when he thought a ceasefire could begin, Biden said, quote, Well, I hope by the beginning of the weekend, the end of the weekend. My national security advisor tells me that we're close. We are very close. We're not done yet. My hope is by next Monday we'll have a ceasefire in place. End quote. Biden commented in New York after taping an appearance on NBC's Late Night with Seth Meyers. Negotiations are underway for a weeks-long ceasefire between Israel and Hamas to allow for the release of hostages being held in Gaza by the militant group in return for Israel, releasing hundreds of Palestinian prisoners. The proposed six-week pause in fighting would also include allowing hundreds of trucks to deliver desperately needed aid into Gaza each and every day. Negotiators face an unofficial deadline or the, of the start of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan around March 10th, a period that often sees heightened Israeli-Palestinian tensions. Meanwhile, Israel has failed to comply with an order by the United Nations top court to provide urgently needed aid to desperate people in the Gaza Strip. Human Rights Watch said Monday, a month after a landmark ruling in The Hague ordered Israel to moderate its war. In a preliminary response to a South African petition accusing Israel of genocide, the UN's top court ordered Israel to do all it can to prevent death, destruction, and any acts of genocide in the Talib tiny Palestinian enclave. It stopped short of ordering an end to the military offensive that has triggered a humanitarian catastrophe there in Gaza. Israel denies the charges against it, saying it is fighting in self-defense. Nearly five months into the war, preparations are underway for Israel to expand its ground operation into Rafah, Gaza's southernmost town along the border with Egypt, where 1.4 million Palestinians have now sought safety. Early Monday, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu once said the army had presented to the war cabinet its operational plan for Rafah, as well as plans to evacuate civilians from the battle zones. It gave no further details. The situation in Rafah has sparked global concern. Israel's allies have warned that it must protect civilians in its battle against the Hamas militant group. On Monday, Palestinian Prime Minister Mohammed Shatiya submitted his government's resignation, and President Mahmoud Abbas is expected to appoint technocrats in line with U.S. demands for internal reform. The U.S. has called for a revitalized Palestinian authority to govern post-war Gaza ahead of eventual statehood, a scenario rejected by Israel. In its January 26 ruling, the International Court of Justice ordered Israel to follow six provisional measures, including taking immediate and effective measures to enable the provision of urgently needed basic services and humanitarian assistance to Gaza. Israel must also submit a report on what it's doing to adhere to the measures within a month. The Israeli foreign ministry said late Monday that it, is, that it has filed such a report. It declined to share it or to discuss its contents. 
Israel said 245 trucks of aid entered Gaza on Sunday. That's less than half the number that entered daily before the war. Human Rights Watch citing U.N. figures, noted a 30% drop in the daily average number of aid trucks entering Gaza in the weeks following the court's ruling. It said that between January 27 and February 21, the daily average of trucks entering Gaza was 93, compared to 147 trucks a day in the three weeks before the ruling. The daily average dropped to 57 between February 9 and 21, the figures showed. The rights group said Israel was not adequately facilitating fuel deliveries to hard-hit northern Gaza and blamed Israel for blocking aid from reaching the north where the World Food Program said last week it was forced to suspend aid deliveries. The Israeli government has simply ignored the court's ruling and in some ways even intensified its repression, said Omar Shakir, Israel and Palestinian director at Human Rights Watch. The Association of International Development Agencies, a coalition of over 70 humanitarian organizations working in Gaza and the West Bank, said almost no aid had reached areas in North Gaza or Rafah since the court's ruling. Israel denies it is restricting entry of aid and has instead blamed humanitarian organizations operating in Gaza, saying large aid shipments sit idle on the Palestinian side of the main crossing. The UN says it can't always reach the crossing because it is at times too dangerous. In some cases, crowds of desperate Palestinians have surrounded delivery trucks and stripped them of supplies. The UN has called on Israel to open more crossings, including in the north, and to provide and improve the process. Netanyahu's office said the war cabinet had approved a plan to deliver humanitarian aid safely into Gaza in a way that would prevent the cases of looting. It did not disclose further details of such plan. The war launched after Hamas-led militants rampaged across southern Israel, killing 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and taking roughly 200 people 250 people hostage, has caused great devastation as a result in Gaza. Nearly 30,000 people have been killed in Gaza, two-thirds of them women and children, which does not distinguish in its count between fighters and non-combatants. Israel said it has killed 10,000 militants without providing any evidence. I wish death for the children because I cannot get them bread. I cannot feed them. I cannot feed my own children, said Naim Abu Saido as he waited for aid in Gaza City. What did we do to deserve this? Bushra Khalidi with UK aid organization Oxfam said it had verified reports that children have died of starvation in the north in recent weeks, which she said indicated aid was not being scaled up despite the court ruling. Aid groups say deliveries also continue to be hobbled by security issues. The French aid groups Medecins du Monde and Doctors Without Borders each said that their facilities were struck by Israeli forces in the weeks following the court order. So another article, friends, on the absolute mess in Gaza, the lack of aid and starvation and the humanitarian crisis continues. All right, 
And finally, an article in sports. For you who follow sports, the name Peter King might be recognizable to you. And this article says, football columnist Peter King to retire. Here it is. Legendary pro football columnist Peter King has announced his retirement from full-time writing. King broke the news to readers in his weekly Football Morning in America column for NBC Sports, calling himself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. King is calling it quits after 44 years as a sports writer, covering the last 40 Super Bowls and writing his weekly column, which was originally called Monday Morning Quarterback when he began at Sports Illustrated for the past 27 years. In his farewell column... King listed several factors that led to his decision to retire, among them his declining interest in the day-to-day news cycle, a desire to try something new, his unsuccessful attempts to scale back the scope of his 10,000-word columns, and a need to spend more time with his family. King said he'd been thinking seriously about his decision ever since asking Kansas City Chiefs coach Andy Reid, after he won the Super Bowl last season, if he was going to retire. And Reed shot back to him, well, are you? During his career covering the NFL, King broke several major stories, such as Lawrence Taylor's drug suspension in 1988 and Brett Favre going into rehab for painkillers in 1996, not to mention informing his legion of readers that the game-winning play in Super Bowl 58 was called Corn Dog. King isn't quite finished writing altogether. He did hold the door open for doing more down the road, and who knows, I may find myself, he said, jonesing to do something in the media when I'm bored in three months. At least one more FMIA column will be forthcoming. King said he will publish a collection of correspondence from readers next Monday. All right, there you have it, folks, the pending retirement of football columnist Peter King. All right, with that article, friends, that ends today's broadcast of the Tuesday, February 27th edition of the Cape Cod Times. This is your volunteer reader, Doug Fagan, saying it's been my pleasure to read for you today, and I look forward to doing so again next Tuesday. Until then, friends, enjoy your life, stay happy, stay healthy, and we'll talk to you again next week. So long for now.